0: well good morning again good morning. Good morning. to start us off I want to share uh, something that happened uh, the past month or so in the office uh, we have a children's director and an office assistant and our office assistant is talented and she creates sometimes some graphics on the computer and I was walking by the office and our children's director and our office assistant stopped me and said hey We'd like to get your opinion on something, and uh, turns out this year um, we're gonna do summer quest at the end of summer on purpose. Uh, it, it's normally if you're not if you don't know what that is or you're you're newer with us, we do a summer quest. that's like VBS out in our community. Normally we do it the first week of June. We're actually gonna do it um, July 31st through August 3rd. I think it is. Uh, we're gonna do it at the end of summer. And the reason why is we invite a ton of families to our summer quest, and then when they come to our church, we have to tell them, and we don't have summer school for your kids for two months, which is normally a turnoff to new people coming to Christ and families interested in church, so, so we're going to have it at the end of the summer. Well, anyway, they made logos for summer quests, and they show me like four or five, and they're like, which one do you like? And I could pretty much come to a decision Uh, quickly, most of the time with that kind of artistic stuff, because I love communication, I love how it looks and feels and the whole deal. Well, they show me, and there's two of them that look really great. And there was a moment where I was like, I can't decide between these two. They're both good, they're both great, but, you know, I don't know. And you've likely had that feeling before, the feeling of indecision, like being indecisive. I don't know which option to choose. If you've ever been in a restaurant and uh, the, a nice, fancy restaurant, and they bring the cart over with the beautiful desserts, and they say, "Which one would you like?" and and I'm always like, "I want this cart. This one is great. I just <laughs> just park it. You know, put the brakes on. That's fine." Uh, but you know, if you've ever had the option between Two things that are really great, you, you don't have a decision, uh, you, you don't know. You don't know which one is the best. Um, there is an English idiom that we use, a phrase that we use to describe that indecisiveness, and it's called being on the fence. If you've ever heard someone say, oh, he's on the fence about that issue, or she's on the fence about that. And there are lots of situations in life where we can be on the fence. Uh, do you want to go to Chick-fil-A or Freddy's? Win-win, right? I don't know. Which one do I want today? Uh, which one is better, vanilla or chocolate? You know, I don't know. I mean, sometimes, I know some of you have, okay, but sometimes other people don't have a decision in that. Uh, you know, in work, this is in the, in the you know, in the office in, with your business, sometimes it's like, should we uh, go with strategy A or strategy B? And you're like, I don't know. They're both good strategies. Uh, Is there a strategy C where I don't have to decide? That would be great. Uh, But there, there are some times where it's okay to be on the fence about some issues. But there are other times where you cannot be on the fence. You're not allowed to be on the fence. Uh, there is no gray area, it is a black or white issue, it's a left or right, yes or no, it's like, a, it's like a, a switch, an on switch, like a light switch in your house. It's either on or off. It's either a closed circuit or an open circuit. There's no other option out there. And there's one issue, one question in which no man or woman or child can be on the fence about, and that's Jesus. We cannot be on the fence when it comes to Jesus. And this is really important, not just for people that don't know him yet, but even for the church, even for us. We need to remember and we need to tell our kids and the next generation needs to know, listen, you can have differing opinions about many things, but one thing that you cannot be on the fence about, that you have to decide, that there is only a left or a right issue with, and that's with Jesus. And Jesus actually explains this in his teaching in the scripture. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he says, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. I've been teaching through the life and ministry of Jesus and we've gotten to this point in his ministry. We don't know exactly chronologically where it is, but, you know, maybe we're in the same vicinity of it. And he tells them, you are either with me or you are against me. And he gives a farming analogy. You are either gathering with me like on a agriculture of their day, either you're bringing the goods into the store barn and it's profitable, you are being fruitful, there is fruit. Either you're gathering or you're scattering. And the, the picture, the idea is, you are either drawing people to Jesus or you are scattering them into the winds of disbelief, the, the winds of disobedience. Either you are drawing people to Jesus or you're pushing them away. There is no neutral ground with Jesus. You cannot be on the fence and there is no gray area. You cannot be neutral. You are not like some in between. And Jesus wanted this to be so sure in the minds and hearts of his hearers, he gave one of the most confusing teach- teachings attached to it so that people would be warned, so that they would take it seriously. You can't be on the fence. You can't be on the fence. In the 1800s, a Scottish preacher named John Duncan uh, published uh, a book, you could call it. And in his writing, he, he wrote this Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, that's lying, or he himself was deluded and self deceived, you could say a lunatic or crazy or out of his mind, or he was divine. He was the Lord. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It's inexorable. Inexorable means it's unstoppable. You can't prevent it. It is inevitable. It is happening. Every person has to deal with this trilemma. Uh, An Asian author who's who's gone now wrote a great uh, book, a little book, uh, The Normal Christian Life, Watchman Nee. He wrote about this trilemma about how Jesus is either a fraud because he's a lunatic, he's crazy, he doesn't know, or he's a liar, he's a deceiver, and he's tricking people into following him, or he's the Son of God, he's Lord of Lords. C.S. Lewis also wrote about this. And uh, he he spoke about it first on radio broadcast, and then he published it in Mere Christianity. If you haven't read that, he's an amazing author, he's gifted by God, and it's just a great book. But he wrote this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Christ. And this is what they say, and he doesn't want people to say this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or, or, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Amen. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just a good teacher. He is either the Son of God The Messiah who came to cleanse us of our sins, to forgive us of our sins, he's either God in the flesh, or he is a liar or a lunatic. There is no other option. Now, if you follow apologetics, I know William Lane Craig, he's so brilliant, he talked about maybe he's legend, kind of adding a fourth thing to it, but that's not a reasonable answer because then you have to say the scripture is erroneous and then it's not really accurate to what it is, which follows no logic when you, when you look at the history. So I don't really include that, but I, that is something that some people include. But he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. And I believe that that truth is found in Mark chapter 3. That that story is found, I actually think C.S. Lewis, John Duncan, Watchman, I think they were thinking of Mark 3's story as they considered who Jesus really was. So if you would turn with me to Mark chapter three, we're gonna talk about being on the fence. You can't be here. You can't be on the fence. And in order to get off the fence and to realize there really is no fence to be on, you have to answer these three questions. So the first question is, is Jesus a lunatic? Is Jesus a lunatic? And uh, we see this in Mark chapter three, verse 20. Jesus entered a house And the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. First century Jewish culture, so many people are there, you can't eat. Very unlikely. It's so crowded. It's so crowded, you cannot even eat. When his family heard this, this is Jesus' family. When Jesus' family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. His brothers and sisters when Jesus became famous and more people were talking about this man who claimed to be God, the Messiah that has finally come, they heard about his fame and they at this point said, Jesus is crazy. Jesus is not the son of man, the son of God. Now, his mother Mary was with them and we get the implied, there's no scripture to prove this. It gives us the implication or um, it gives us the thought that that Mary did believe in Jesus, but she's there as a mom. Any moms out there where you kind of go along with your kids, like, sure, let's save your sibling, but you just love them all and you're just trying to be neutral. So Mary was with them, but his brothers and sisters did not believe in him until he rose from the dead. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they even believed. They thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was a lunatic, insane, crazy. But what you learn in the story is That's forgivable. It's forgivable. You can be forgiven if at one time you thought Jesus was crazy. He makes no sense. He's not really who he says he is. And we learn this from Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They all were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. One of his brothers was... Uh, James, James who wrote that New Testament letter, that practical wisdom literature of the New Testament. James did not believe that Jesus was Lord while Jesus was still doing his miracles and performing and doing all that. He did not believe in Jesus as Lord. It was not until after the resurrection that we find that James became a believer and became one of the top leaders in Jerusalem, one of the top Messianic Jews of his day. And so, Jesus' own family had to wrestle with this question, is Jesus a lunatic? Is he out of his mind? Is he crazy? Now, they did believe after, but during the moment, they were questioning this. So, is Jesus a lunatic? No. Jesus is not a lunatic. The second question you have to wrestle with is, is Jesus a liar? So, Maybe he's not out of his mind. Maybe he's really smart. He knows what he's doing. He's got a purpose. Uh, He's doing it for fame or whatever he's doing it for. Uh, Maybe he's not a lunatic, but he's a liar. Now, this is what we see in the scribes. It wasn't just his family that came to get him. You know who else wanted to come and stop Jesus and get him? It was the religious teachers of his day. And they said he was a liar in essence, Uh, You read it in verse 22. This is right after the family was coming. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, so this is a different perspective on Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So a question we would ask about the scribes and the Pharisees is, Why didn't they say the same thing that Jesus' family said? Because that's really helpful for them. Why not just say, uh, this teacher, this Messiah, he's a lunatic. He's crazy. He doesn't know what he's saying. Don't believe him. He's making nonsense. He's not following the law of Moses. Just don't go along with him. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees heard news about Jesus and understood about Jesus and watched Jesus perform miracles. The reason why they couldn't say he was a lunatic were, was because of the signs and wonders. Deaf people could hear, blind people could see, mute people could speak, lame people could walk again. Jesus changed people's lives, he performed miracles, miracles uh, even ro- raised people from the dead. The same power that was shown in Elijah and Elisha and the prophets, Moses, he was a greater prophet than Moses. Everything they did to show that they had the power of God, Jesus did even better. Jesus performed more miracles than they did. And so the the scribes and the Pharisees, they couldn't say Jesus was crazy. You wanna know why? Because crazy doesn't perform miracles. And so they had to take a different route about who Jesus was. And that was well, he's a liar, he's not really using the power of God, he's actually using the power of the devil. They were saying, oh, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Now, if you know Old Testament, uh, if if you've read through the Old Testament, you've heard about Beelzebub. Beelzebub means the lord of the high places, talking about Baal, he was a false god, and he was like the top false god. Uh Baal was the one that, he was kind of like the, the Lord that was above other lords. So like small g God, but he was one of the most powerful gods. And so Beelzebub really points us to the devil. Well, the Jews didn't believe in Beelzebub. They thought he, he was a dud. They, they didn't believe he's a false god. And so they changed, in their language, basically, if you change the B to an L, and Beelzebub to Beelzebul, you change it from the Lord of the high places to the Lord of the Flies. There was even a novel written in American literature, The Lord of the Flies. It's from Beelzebub, And the reason why it's called The Lord of the Flies is these are the flies that hang around the poop, uh, the dung heaps. They're flies that come around garbage and refuse and nasty stuff. And so the Jews, to make a negative comment about Beelzebub is Beelzebub. So these Jews are saying, hey, hey, not that he's crazy. We're not saying Jesus is crazy. We're saying he's a deceiver, and the way that he performs these miracles, the way that you hear about Jesus doing all these things is because he's using the power of the devil. Now, they don't say devil like we say devil, but that's the idea. The ruler of the demons, kind of like the the Lord of the demons, Beelzebul, this is the power by which he works. So Jesus hears this, understands this, that they're saying this, uh, And so he summons them in verse 23. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. Now, don't think of a classic parable, a short story with a big idea. Think of parables, parable A, which means to throw alongside. It's using a teaching illustration and analogy, something to help you understand what's being taught. So Jesus spoke to them in parables. Now, we learn other places in the Gospels. He spoke to them in parables so that they wouldn't understand, meaning If you have ears to hear, ears of faith, and you really listen to God, and the the Holy Spirit comes alongside his truth, convicts you in your heart, you know what the truth is. That's the idea of using the parable. He wants them to understand, in a sense. So he he, he speaks to them in parables, and he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. That word for tetelstai at the end where Jesus is on the cross, it is finished. He's finished. He's going he's to die. This is war strategy 101. Now, this was before the art of war, but you get the idea. This is war strategy 101. This is how do you defeat another strong nation divide and conquer if you get a group of people fighting amongst themselves you can knock them out in no time you can defeat any group that's not united so jesus asked them a parable that any common man not just a religious person anybody knows this listen if a kingdom is divided against itself you can overtake it you can destroy it it'll pretty much destroy itself A house is the same way, meaning a family. If a family is divided, that family's not gonna stand. If a church is divided, that church will not stand. So he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's ludicrous. That's irrational. That's not logical. You guys are claiming that I'm doing this by the power of Satan. Satan's not empowering me to beat his demons. That makes no sense. That's working against himself. And if Satan is opposed to... If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. So Jesus teaches this, I'm not a lunatic, and I'm not lying, it's not by the power of the devil that I'm performing these miracles. Instead, he makes it clear, I am the Lord, which answers the third question, is Jesus the Lord? You can't be on the fence about this. He is either... A lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. All three of these are demonstrated beautifully in this one story. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about Satan not opposing himself. I'm not doing this by Satan's power. Satan is the strong man. His house is this kingdom. Satan is the prince, the ruler of the air. He has dominion right now. He's he's influencing and deceiving on earth, and Jesus says, I'm not using his power. No, 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 don't you understand how this works? No one can come into a strong man's house and steal his stuff, cast out his demons, destroy him, overtake him, Unless he first binds or the word ties up, in most of your English translation, it's the word binds, like in, at the end of Revelation when he says Satan will be bound for a thousand years. This is the bound word. He's saying, listen, I am only able to cast out demons and perform these miracles because I am stronger than Beelzebul. I'm stronger than Satan. I'm overtaking him. I'm not the Lord of the flies, I'm the Lord of lords. So Jesus is speaking to Jewish teachers, and they're understanding him. The way that I'm performing these miracles is by the power of God. It is his power in me working through me. I am over Satan because I'm binding him up, and I'm casting out demons, and I'm performing miracles. So you guys get the idea. Satan is the strong man. The house is the world. Jesus has entered this world, proven he's done what's only possible by the Lord of Lords. And there's someone more important and more powerful than the devil here. And it's the Son of God. So Jesus is demonstrating, I am the Lord. And you know what's unique about the Lord of Lords? He forgives. The Lord came to seek and to save the lost. To forgive sinners of their sins. At one time Jesus said, I came not to judge, but to save. I came to die for the sins of the world, to forgive them. He came to forgive them for grace and mercy. And you see that in verse 27, the very next verse. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. He's the Lord of Lords and he came to forgive people of all their sins and all their blasphemies. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. And this is what concerns, worries, frightens lots of Christians and non-Christians. This has bothered many Christians. There are, there, certainly there are Christians in this room that have read the New Testament, gotten to a part like this and said, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I done this? A lot of people were afraid of this. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Because they were attributing Jesus' power and what's working through him to the devil, he warns them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Don't go to the next slide yet. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Actually, I'm tired. Actually, this is a good enough sermon If you guys want to wait till next week, we could talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Or if someone else wants to come up here and explain this, that's great. Uh, What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because there are some people, even in this room, I know it's true. You've wondered, have I committed this sin? Because it sounds really serious, like it's the only sin that's unforgiven, unforgivable. It's actually called the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. And and Christians have been worried. So I want to show you in Scripture what it certainly is not, and then we'll deal with what it is. What do we know for certain that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not? Well, it's not some heinous sin, like the sin of murder, murdering yourself, like suicide or adultery. There have been some people in, in church history and in the Catholic Church and other denominations, Uh, other, not just denominations, but other affiliations with with Christianity. There have been some that taught, oh, murder is the unforgivable sin, or suicide, or adultery. And and we know that's not true because there have been examples of people in the Bible that have committed those sins and been forgiven. An example of this is King David. King David uh, abused, he murdered, he uh, committed adultery. He did all those things, and he was forgiven later. He was a man after God own heart and he was forgiven. So we know that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't just a particular sin that just seems really bad in our own eyes. It's not that. We also know it's not denying Christ because the Apostle Peter denied Christ three times. Some people have read this verse. There's actually, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark. It is a similar story in Luke. There's this time where Jesus teaches on this more than once where he says, uh, if you deny me, Before men, I will deny you before the Father. And there are some people that are worried, I've denied Christ. I've denied Christ at work or with my family or my neighbors or in a group or in a a certain scenario. I've done this. Is that the unforgivable sin? Is that the connection there? Well, it's not that. Peter denied Christ three times. His own brothers and sisters denied him being the Son of Man multiple times. It wasn't until after he rose from the dead that they became believers, and they were believers then. So it's not denying Christ. It's also not despising Christ to the point of murdering him. When Jesus was on the cross, you guys know the setting. There were people there, Jews and Gentiles even, mainly Jews, uh, except for the Romans, and they're there and they are crucifying Jesus. Why? They hated his message. They, some of them hated him. They despised him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to snuff him out, get rid of him. And what did Jesus say on the cross when he was up there? Forgive him for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, If Jesus would say, Father, forgive them, that means it's forgivable what they've done. And what they've done is despised him to the point of murdering him. So we know it's not despising Christ. We also know it's not uh, blaspheming against the church and Jesus and what the Holy Spirit is even doing in the church. Which is tri- This has tricked some people up. I want to show you this in the life of Paul, because some people think, well, maybe it's a New Testament deal and it's just whatever. I want to, I want to show you in First Timothy chapter one. This is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Is the you know First Timothy that we have? He says, "I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry." Paul's talking about himself. Even though I was formally a blasphemer now just think about that who did paul blaspheme against well we know it's not god the father he was a jew of all jews he was a pharisee of pharisees he followed the law to the letter he loved the old testament he wanted to be right with god he had only one god and that was the god of the old testament that's the only bible they had in his day he didn't blaspheme against God like the bla- there's blasphemies in the Old Testament, the law. You, you find some blasphemies. It wasn't that. He, he was righteous before God in his own eyes, at least. Who did he blaspheme against? Well, when you read the book of Acts, who did, who did Paul persecute? The church. The, the people of the way is what they called it in his day. This new way, Christianity. He persecuted them. You know what he thought about Jesus? He thought Jesus was a farce. You know what he thought about Acts chapter 2? That's not the power of the Holy Spirit. Those people might have been drunk. I don't think there's no miracles going on here. He wanted to snuff the church out. So we know that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not even a New Testament only deal where you look at where God is working amongst his people and saying, that's not true and that's not really God. That can't be it because Paul is an example of this and he was forgiven. But notice how he was forgiven. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. That's important. He didn't know. He didn't know who God really was. He thought he did, but he was wrong. He was ignorant. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. He acted in out of ignorance and unbelief. So when you go back to Mark chapter three and Jesus says, but anybody that blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, clearly this is not talking about what Paul did because Paul was forgiven. Now, I'm gonna continue on, but watch, watch what happens next. He's talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Then verse 31 his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is giving reassurance about who belongs to him. Now, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Whoever does the will of God is my mother and brother and sister. Who who is that? In John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus teaching, John uses more of these theological discourses in his gospel. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is what God wants. God wants for Jesus to be your Lord. And Jesus can be your Lord. He can be your Savior if you see him and you believe in him and you gain eternal life. Jesus promises if you see him and believe in him, you have eternal life and he will raise you up on the last day. When Christ comes back, you're going to be raised from the dead. That was what his promise was. So whatever the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, what it is not is if you desire to come to Christ and you see Jesus for who he is and you repent of your sins, meaning you know this is wrong, it's against God, you have committed sins, you know that makes you undone before God, that makes you unrighteous, and you believe that Jesus is the only way for you to be forgiven of your sins. He's the only one, his blood can atone for your sins if you place your faith in him, if you trust in him, you will be saved. If that's you, you have eternal life and you will be raised on the last day. So if you're worried that you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and you believe in Jesus for who he is and you've repented and put faith in him, you have not committed, you have not sinned the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, you haven't done it. There are a lot of people when they say I'm worried about this, I ask them, what did you do that makes you think you've committed this sin? Because I could tell you a number of things it's not. And when I describe what it's not, they're like, yeah, well, I guess I was thinking it was one of those things that it's not. So what is it? Well, it's time to go, so I'm, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) This is like the one time I wish I talked too long. Uh, It's really hard to understand. A lot of Christians in church, church history has not agreed on this, by the way, so it's not like you just point to one group of people and be like, yeah, that's what it was. Um, Everyone agrees on this. Whatever it is, it's not one of the things we said it's not and you can be saved if you believe in Christ. Place your trust in him, repent of your sins, you can be saved, period. Uh, so what is it? When the Pharisees were saying that you are possessed by Beelzebul and he does these wonders and miracles through the power of the ruler of demons, when they were saying this, he warned them, he never said that is exactly what they did. They did commit The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and they will never be forgiven. Jesus never says that. Now, some people imply that, but Jesus never says that. So, we don't know that that's what it would be either. But some people said maybe that's it. Maybe it's if you see the Holy Spirit and you see his work and power and you know that it's him and then you commit it, that's it. It's done for you. It doesn't matter how much you repent. I don't think scripture makes that thread sound. I don't think that makes sense, but. A few people have said that. Uh, Some people have said you can't do it anymore because it was so specific to Jesus being the Son of Man, like in Matthew chapter 12, he specifically says Son of Man. So that's when he was in his flesh and he was performing these miracles. And it can't happen now because is Jesus in the flesh right now performing miracles like it was in the first century? Well, no. And so they say it's impossible for you or I to even commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's consistent. It's a good idea about what that passage is. Maybe that's it. But my favorite is this. They, he never said they did commit that sin. He was warning them that they were either close to committing it or they could commit it. But the idea was not acting out of ignorance and unbelief. If you know that this is the Holy Spirit working through his son Jesus. And Jesus is who he says he is. You know that's true. This is the Holy Spirit. And then blasphemy. In order to blaspheme, you have to do it verbally. A blasphemy is not unbelief. Unbelief is unbelief. You can you not believe in Christ and then be forgiven later if you come to him in belief. So some people said, oh, that must be unbelief. Well, that doesn't make sense because you can be forgiven for unbelief. Um, but if you know that it's the Holy Spirit working and you're not acting out of ignorance and unbelief, and then you proclaim with your words, your pen, your typing, whatever, you proclaim, this is the work of the devil. Some people have said, that may be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which I've not known anybody that has done that personally. I don't know anybody that's done that, but maybe that's it. But I think what's most important for the church to understand that helps us in our fears is to know what it's not. So I wanted you to walk away with for sure what it's not. Christians have debated on exactly what it is. But here's the wonderful truth. If you believe in Jesus, you've repented of your sins, there is no unforgivable sin for you. That's not in the context of the story of Mark 3 or Matthew 12, and that's not through the thread of the rest of the New Testament. Uh, You can be saved. What else is important is you have neighbors and coworkers and family members that desperately need forgiveness of their sins. And God wants you to be the one to go out there and tell them. You are the ones that carry the message. Uh, this weekend, I watched a movie with uh, Courtney called Jesus Revolution. I don't know if anybody else saw it. It was really touching. It was the 1970s. It's not for little kids. I think teenagers should probably watch it to get the dose of reality. It's a, I think it's a great movie for, for adults, young adults. Um, what was so encouraging about the movie is God has obviously worked in people's lives through the gospel message that Jesus came to save, to save sinners, that you can be saved. God has so clearly worked in the gospel message where people have come to Christ that what we can't be on the fence about is not only who Jesus is, but is what Jesus has called us to do. We are the church. We are his ambassadors We are his spokesmen and spokeswomen. We are his only plan to reach this community, your community, your circles of influence. And you could think, I know Jesus is Lord, I'm fine. I haven't committed that sin. But if you sit there and you're not making disciples, and you're not sharing the good message, and you're not reaching your neighbors, and you're not being intentional and sacrificing your life and money and time so that other people can know the message, you you may not understand how much you are on the fence because Jesus has not given a plan B for the church. They need to know who the Lord is, and he's not a lunatic, and he's not a liar, and if he's Lord, that changes everything and that also guides our mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Uh, I thank you for Paul's life and Peter's life and David's life and the, just the raw exposure of their sins and weaknesses that has helped us understand the way that you work. We love your grace and mercy. We pray that you would use us to be your people out in our community. Help us to share the good news with others. We were only saved because we believed in the gospel, repented of our sins, and turned to you. And we only did that because the gospel came to us, and that came to us through people. Would you help us to be those people that that you would send us out with your good news?